Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Happier History. I'm your host, Professor Harpin. Today I wanted to talk about more about the diaspora in the New World and its effect on how we classify people nationally, ethnically, and racially. So sort of picking back, because I know it's been a while since I did the first one. It was called Words Mean Things Diaspora Part One, because I knew I had more to talk about, but I didn't I published it quite a few months ago. So just to refresh, um, the reason I called it words mean things the first time is because nationality, ethnicity, and race all have their own definitions. And in the first podcast, I went over what the definitions are between the three. Um, And what I'll refresh you by saying now is that a lot of people, especially in the U.S., and I don't know if it's something that happens other places as much, but in the United States, we often conflate the three words and use them interchangeably, which causes a lot of confusion surrounding how people classify themselves, how people are classified by others, and how we relate and share information about who it is we're talking about when we're talking about a specific group of people. So I guess I should go over the definitions again. So the definition of nationality is the country that you're born in. Um, or it could be the country that you're currently living in, which in some cases means people are going to have hyphenates um, between two different countries. So generally speaking, I guess I'll save that. Okay. So ethnic ethnicity. So the definition of ethnicity is what larger subset culture group do you belong to? So what cultural customs do you have? That's how we define ethnicity. And then we define race in this country by your physiological characteristics or your physical characteristics, I guess. Um, and, if those are commonly found within a group of people who share a similar racial makeup. So just to, I guess, elaborate a little bit more. So what I meant by multi-hyphenate is that, you know, somebody like myself who was born in America, my, in the United States, right? Because we know that America is a continent and America is a supercontinent. So, but generally the, you know, when you hear the term America referred to as a nation, you, you know, it's talking about the United States. So for people born in the United States, our nationality is American, period. It's not um, hyphenated at all because we weren't born anywhere else. And I know some of you might be thinking, well, wouldn't you be considered African-American? No, not for nationality. So for ethnicity, in this country, we only have two ethnic classifications. You're either Hispanic slash Latino or non-Hispanic slash Latino. Um, and for myself, I am a non-Hispanic Latino, Latinx Latino. I'm not Latin culturally, so I would be in the non-Latinx group. Racially speaking, I'm black. I, my physical characteristics firmly are, and co- are firmly within the black sphere of like how we identify black people in this country. And my traits are found within a wide range of people who are also black. So that's going to be things like skin color, obviously, hair texture. Um, It could be things like build. It could be things like, I mean, like physical build. 
just different things, but most of the times it gets relegated to things like eye color, skin color, hair texture, um, lips, nose, things like that. And one of the books that I recommended that you read in the first episode I did about this was The Jim Crow Guide to the USA, written by Stetson Kennedy, because it really is a great analysis of the Jim Crow ways in which people were identified by race and how each state quantified that and how they would classify people. And I was telling you all in the first episode that because these three words are used interchangeably in the United States, it does make it very difficult to determine um, which group you're talking about. So for example, oftentimes in this country, you hear the term Latinx or Latino, Hispanic, to mean a, a racial group of people. So you may see a demographic breakdown to say, oh, well, how does the, you know, what is the economic status spectrum amongst Hispanic Latinos? Or what is the incarceration, what's the result of the prison industrial complex or the impact of the prison industrial complex on the Hispanic or Latino group? Or how many people in this city or in this country are Hispanic Latino? But the problem is that that's an ethnicity, it's not a racial group. And so because it's an ethnicity, you can't, those aren't really true statistics, right? It's a cultural group. So within the Latin cultural group, within the Latinx cultural group, you have different races of people. You have indigenous people who are Latinx. You have white people who are Latinx. You have black people who are Latinx. You have Asian people who are Latinx, right? Because it's not a race, that's also very problematic when we look at the way that group is represented. And I did kind of cover this in the first podcast I did about this, but I talked about Gina Torres, who is a black Latina actress. And even though, again, ethnically, she's a Latina, so she grew up in that culture. She, you know, she's, her culture is Latin. Her phenotype sits within the black phenotype. She is easily identified as a black woman. The problem is that when she would go up for roles um, that call for a Latina actress, she would not be picked because they were, even though she's from that culture, they were looking for someone with a white phenotype, right? And even today, when you look at actresses who are cast in you know Latin American countries, they don't tend to pick women who are black descended Latinas or women who are indigenous-descended Latinas. They are going for the ones who are more what would be considered white Hispanic Latinas, so people who look like Jennifer Lopez, people who look like, I can't even say her name. Some of you know how I feel about this woman, but, you know, Gina Rodriguez. Like, people who look like, you know, who are more, like, white-leaning and the reason I don't like Gina Rodriguez is because she does and says a lot of things that are anti-black. And so it's just further proof again that, you know, again, like that, that people of color umbrella is not beneficial to black people because many people of color are anti-black. And that kind of goes with what we're going to talk about today within this second part of to the podcast is because the, the anti-blackness and anti-indigenous sentiment began centuries ago. And of course it could be argued and it's a very valid point that it had it was started at its impetus, right? In the beginning in the 15th century when the Spanish and the Portuguese, when mostly the Spanish colonized the Americas, North, Central and South and the Caribbean, they were of course going to position themselves as 
the smartest, the brightest, the most courageous, etc. Now that had long lasting effects on the hemisphere because, you know, it's, I want to re- say again, I did in the first one, Spanish people are, is Spain is in Europe. So Spanish people are white. That's very important because sometimes when you hear people talk and it's interesting, like even amongst people who are, you know, within the Latin ethnic group and they say things like, oh, well, you know, I'm Spanish, I'm Spanish or, you know, I'm a Spanish girl, I'm a Spanish guy. It's like, no, you're not. Like you're a descendant of the people who they colonized, sis. You know what I mean? Like you're not them. And that's why when you go to Spain and you speak your dialect of Spanish, they treat you like crap, right? Because they know that it's not really them. So because the Spanish were going into the new world and positioning themselves in the power, excuse me, in the positions of power and authority, they also were going to position their classifications, the jobs, the best land, you know, what's considered attractive, what's considered beautiful, what's considered ugly, what's, you know, um, I don't know, what types of just everything, everything that they created in society is going to be from their perspective back home in Spain. So everything that they are is now the new, it's the new upper echelon and it's what everyone else should aspire to. So that had very, very lasting effects. And the way that people in the new world classified the mixed race people that came out of these, you know, unions, because there were people who did were legally allowed to marry and procreate outside of their race, even if they were being discouraged because of their position or because of, you know, issues of, you know, pure blood when it comes to Spanish lineages and keeping track of all that. It did often happen that people were mixed race. And so, and even for the people who weren't mixed race, the way that they're going to be classified in society is up to the people who are in power, which is going to be the white Europeans from Spain. So when you look at the types of things that they would call people and how they would classify them, it's important for us to note that these things were part of your public record. So when you were born, your race was recorded when you were baptized, your race and the races of your godparents were also recorded. This is something that followed you for the rest of your life in the in the colonial era in the New World. And colonial era meaning, you know, the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries. So when it comes to how people were classified, as people become more mixed in, the classifications would get more and more, it would be more interpreted as rude, right? It would be ruder as you mixed in more. So people who were half Spanish and half native, or as they would have called it, like Indian, they were considered mestizos. Now, a lot of people have heard that term. Some people have reclaimed the term mestizo. A lot of the people who, again, like I said, who represent the ethnic Latin community tend to be people who would have been classified as mestizos. So, you know, they, you can tell that they're not like fully European, um, that they're like a, a mix of indigenous and, you know, white Spanish blood. Now, 
and even under them, like, cause again, this is a top down system. So at the top, like I said, the Spanish are organizing a system in which they are seen as the Supreme. So to be classified as Spanish, or at that time, they would, of course, they would have called it Espanol or Espanola. That's the best racial classification that you can have, because it means that they can trace you all the way back to Spain. And yes, I mean all the way back. So when you, again, when you're born, when you're baptized, all these things are a matter of public record. So no matter where you went, you could show who you were, who your parents, your grandparents, your godparents, your great grandparents, like everybody all the way back that they were from Spain. Underneath them is going to be the people who are mestizo. So those are, like I said, people who are half Spanish, half native. Under them are the people who are. I guess it'd be like one third native and then two thirds Spanish. And then, because it like, this is literally like, well, I guess it would be a quarter, huh? Maybe for get for Castizo, which should have been a quarter native and three quarters Spanish. Yeah. So like I said, this is a laddered system and the people who were underneath them would of course been, the people who were mixed in now with African and natives. So those would be called Zambos or Zamba, right? Because we know this is a, a gendered language. Even further down underneath that is going to be people who are, well, and not that it would have been underneath necessarily, because of course, like an African mixing, someone who's African and European is going to be higher than someone who's African and indigenous, right? Because the Europeanists get you more points, if you will, on their like laddered system. So the people who are half Spanish, half African would have been classified as mulatos or mulata. And then, you know, it just keeps going down. Now, the more people who, the more mixing you have within the family. So when you start getting into lineages where someone has five parts Spanish, three parts African, and like two parts um, native Indian, like that person's going to be classified as a Hibaro. Like that's their classification that's on their birth certificate, that's on their, that's on their baptism record that follows them wherever they go. Somebody who has, let's see, like a 16 parts Spanish, 13 parts African, four parts native indigenous like they're going to be classified legally like their legal classification is no te entiendo so i don't understand that's what they're classified as it says on their birth certificate that their race is i don't understand (laughs) so like i said like the more mixing you get in the more like that blood quantum is being added up the ruder they get with how they're classifying people and people who some of the people who were at the bottom would have been people who were considered torn atrás. So that's someone who's 16 parts Spanish, 13 parts African. Um, I guess it would be five or six parts, six parts Native Indian, Native American, Native Indigenous. So that translates to a complete step back. Now, again, this is from the point of view of the Spanish. So from their point of view, once you have all of that ethnic DNA, right? You have multiple European grandparents, multiple indigenous grandparents, multiple African parentage grandparents. They don't know what you're going to look like. 
Because like I mentioned in the first podcast, it's not just about how you classify yourself, but how other people classify you. And that's what we call today phenotype. So in many ways, the new world was a pigmentocracy. Pigment, meaning like, you know, it was based on how you looked. And even though people may not know what you're going to look like, because if you're somebody who is considered um, a complete step back, you may have, you know, even though, you know, you may have more technically a couple more Spanish parentage than African parentage, you may come out looking firmly within the phenotype of blackness, of Africans, right? So dark skin textured hair, dark eyes, right? Things like that. And even though you're someone, again, who's a Tornatross who only has six parts native indigenous, you may come out looking firmly with like a native indigenous person. Most of us know, hopefully, you know, that not all mixed people look mixed. Some of them don't look mixed at all. They lean more toward one phenotype. They're not as racially ambiguous. And the same thing happened in this time period, in the 17th and 18th centuries, which is why they documented it on your birth certificate. The reason that they documented it is because they understood that, especially with you know the people who are mestizos, castizos, mulatos, etc., they recognize that the le- like the less mixing you have, there's more of a potential that you can pass as Spanish or what we would call in the U.S. pass as white. It's the same idea because, again, Spanish people are white. Like They want to make sure that the people who are European whites are not going to be confused with anybody else. And the only way that they can really do that in the new world is to make sure that they have everything written down on paper. And have a system in which you have to prove that you are or are not certain things in order to function in order to function in society. So, like I said, because interracial marriage, interracial sex was legal in the new world, especially once you were free, right? People could do what they wanted to do. So all the church and the state wanted to do, the church meaning the Catholic church and the state meaning, you know, the Spanish state, quote unquote, through the local governments of their colonies in Peru, Venezuela, Chile, Argentina, Colombia, Mexico, Puerto Rico, etc., Cuba, they wanted to make sure that they could say, okay, yeah, you can do what you want to do, but we always have a record of what it is you're doing. And the in the racial classifications that people got made or broke the way that they were able to maneuver in society. So certain jobs they could not apply for if they weren't high enough on that social on that um, racial ladder, right? Because it's also important. I know I said it interchangeably there, but that's important because it really was like that. Like your race was inextricably inextricably tied to your class. Period. So. You did have people in the 17th century who were able to, the early 17th century, who were enslaved as Africans and were able to buy their freedom um, while they were in the new world. You know, they would have Sundays off. They were able to make their own personal money and keep it. They didn't have to turn that money over to their masters and they would buy their freedom. So you did have wealthy black people. You did have 
um, business owners who were black, etc. But by 1650, so the middle of the 17th century, they stopped that from happening. Because once they decided that their society was going to function as a racial caste system, they can't allow people who are not white to buy into whiteness, if that makes sense. So a really, really good book about this is actually Purchasing Whiteness. I may have mentioned this in the first podcast, but it's Purchasing Whiteness by Ann Twinham. It's a really great book. And she discusses that, you know, in the book that you had many people who would buy certificates of whiteness. And it's not that they wanted, and the analysis of that is that it's not that they wanted to be white, right? It's that they wanted the social mobility and access for themselves and their children. They wanted to be able to go to get a formal education. They wanted their children to be able to get a government job or a middle, what we would consider today a middle class stable job. They wanted to make sure that they could live anywhere they wanted to live. They wanted to have basic human rights in their society without race being a barrier to that. And by the middle of the 17th century, it was clear that race was going to be a barrier to that. So by making sure that they were able to secure sometimes higher positions or buy into higher positions, it gave them the access that came with that. It's also very important to note that they weren't asking the local governments, you know, like I mentioned all these Latin American colonies, right, in the countries we know today, they weren't asking those local governments for these certificates of whiteness that they were purchasing. They were asking the state, meaning that not the state of, you know, Venezuela or the state of Colombia. They were asking, I'm sorry, those are countries. (laughs) Oh my God. But I meant that they, I know they're countries, but they weren't asking the state governments within those countries. They were asking like the capital S state, um, meaning like they were asking the Spanish court and the Spanish system to grant them these certificates of whiteness. And so they would mail the money to Spain and in within Spain, they would mail them back the certificate of whiteness. And then they would take those certificates with them to apply for jobs, to apply for, you know, uh, school systems, educational programs, et cetera, to have more access than they were able to before. Now, the next question may be like, well, did that extend to their kids? No. This is very much a money-making system for the Spanish crown. So this is going to be to the chagrin of the people who are the criollos, or what we would call creoles. And that's another word, again, that gets used interchangeably, depending on where you are, what century you're in, what country you're in, etc. But at this time, creoles were people who were born in the New World, but whose families were born out in the old world. So technically speaking, sometimes when you hear people talking about the difference between the enslaved who were brought, who were enslaved back in Africa and then brought to the continental Americas, they refer to the ones who were born, the next generation who was born in the Americas as Creole slaves. It doesn't mean that they're mixed. It means that they were born in the Americas, like they're children of the Americas. And also Spanish people who had their children who were born in the New World, those children are also considered Creoles. So 
being classified as a full-blooded Spanish person from Spain puts you higher up on that ladder than being a full-blooded Spanish person who was born in the colonies, but whose parents were born in Spain. And that's like one of those like internal ladders, like, because the idea is that, yes, you're a full-blooded Spanish person, but, you know, you may have an inclination toward you know, these people who you grew up around, right? These indigenous people, these black people, these mixed race people, you might give them more concessions than we would because like they're your countrymen, right? Because you were born in this country and they were born in this country. That's their ideology at that time, which is really interesting that they considered that to be an allying thing. But of course, for most of the Creoles or the Criollos, who were Spanish Creoles, they didn't feel that way. They most certainly wanted to maintain that Spanish supremacy, that white supremacy, because they benefited from it. Like racially speaking, they are that group. There's just the very small caveat of them having been born in the colony, so technically being considered Creoles. And that's what I meant in the first podcast when I was talking about this, when I was talking about gatekeeping, right? How many people within the ethnic group of Latinx gatekeep who's allowed to be seen and represent part of that group. Even within that group, a lot of the people who are not represented are still indigenous and black and even Asian people who are Latinx, okay? So even though... The people who are the gatekeepers of that of that ethnic cultural group say that they're being oppressed, which no one, I'm not saying that they're not, but they have become the oppressors to the black, indigenous, and Asian people of Latin culture who don't get any airtime at all, right? People like Gina Torres, like I just mentioned. So... That's really interesting. And the same thing happened in the governments when the Spanish left. Now, when the Spanish left, were expelled from, you know, the Americas with the revolutionary movements throughout Latin American countries and they reclaimed their independence. The people who were left there in the countries still maintained the same ideology of Spanish supremacy. And so the way that they treated the indigenous and black descended people who were around them was still very poorly. Because again, these were the people who were often the Criollos. You had people who were African and indigenous descended as well, but the people who now positioned themselves as the authority are the people who are still the descendants of the people who colonized the first time. They were just born in the Americas. And the people who they put in power since then, even through today in most of these countries, they're still the descendants of the original people who colonized. And they can, of course, use the fact that they were born in that country to their advantage, right? But you can't just write off the fact that it's still the same people who are in power. It's still the same people who are maintaining a white lens of attractiveness and intelligence and beauty standards and cultural values and different things like that's all still very much in in the old world even though it just seems like it's not it's kind of like the difference between mayonnaise and aioli like they're just aioli they're still mayonnaise they just have a little bit you know a different taste right you're like oh it's it's not mayonnaise it's like okay yeah it is (laughs) 
or, you know, Dijon and, and plain yellow mustard. Like it's still mustard, like there's still mustard. Now, some things that are important that just happened, um, Francia, I think her name's Francia Marquez. Yeah, Francia Marquez. She was just elected as the vice president of Colombia. Now, you should look her up. She is an Afro-Colombian woman. Now, if you when you look her up, because New York Times did a piece about her when she was elected, and you can look up the hashtag Francia Marquez with a Z at the end. She is a, again, Afro-Colombian. Now, Within Colombia, of course, her nationality is just Colombian because she was born there. Like she's not, she has no tie to any other country. Her family, you know, her, her family, they're from Colombia, right? Just like me and my family were from the United States. But when you look at her, her phenotype is firmly within the black phenotype. She has highly textured hair, like type four hair, what we consider type four hair. And she has very, and she has like dark skin, so she in you know she has the lips the nose again like she sits firmly within the phenotype of blackness and she I also identifies as a Afro-Colombian like a black Colombian. So that's what I mean as far as like the representation. That is a huge deal that she's the vice president as a woman also, right? But because she is clearly sits within the phenotype of blackness. Now when it comes to how people handled these things in the colonial world, just to kind of go back, like I said, it did dictate what types of jobs you can have and things like that. There's plenty of literature about even things like midwifery. So like midwives, they're early forms of medicine. And I think especially as we get more toward holistic medicine and plant medicine today around the world, but especially in the Western world, it's important to notice and to note historically that many of the people who practiced this early type of medicine were black and indigenous people, right? Because they did not have any other place to go. They couldn't go to medical schools. They couldn't go to formal medical programs to become midwives, right? Or to become doctors or you know, to study botany at a university. They had to learn it on their own through things that they had passed down through their generations and passed down to each other because they were forced to work the land. So of course, they're going to have a more of a basic knowledge of what plants do and don't do, how you can cook with them, how to extract things from it, et cetera, at a, at a grassroots level. And when we look at holistic medicine today, there are you know, we want to make sure to give the credit where it's due and also acknowledge that, you know, there are a lot of people who were prosecuted for having that knowledge because it was seen as beneath the very people whose descendants rely on it today because they're dying of opioid, they're dying of an opioid epidemic. So I just wanted to make that clear. Now, also in the colonial era, we also had the way that people would be characterized based on their phenotype. So like I just mentioned Francia Marquez, right? That she sits firm within the phenotype of a black person. She is Colombian nationally, racially she's black and her ethnicity, we would consider that to be Hispanic, Latina, right? So there we go. Um, they didn't have photographs. Well, excuse me, they did have photographs in the 19th century, but in the 17th century and for a lot of the 18th century, they didn't have access to photographs, right? So 
they had to rely on drawing people. And when you look at the way that they would draw people who were indigenous descended or black descended, it is very disrespectful. The same way it's disrespectful in the way that they would classify them. And the jobs that they did and didn't allow them to have, and the people who they did and didn't allow them to, you know, live around or anything like that, it continues the culture of disrespect. And those types of things have lasting effects today in the 21st century because you have people who deny indigenous heritage or deny African heritage unless they feel like they can monetize it to use language that is reserved for certain groups or to get money in some way. But most of the people who are within these groups deny that type of parentage because there's a stigma in Latin America of being indigenous. And even in you know the United States and throughout the hemisphere, there's a stigma to being indigenous descended. There's a stigma to being African descended, especially if you can, like I said, pass for something else. So the way that they would draw these people was very telling because in some of the drawings, you can definitely tell that it's not that they drew them in like an extra caricature way, but that they drew them showing what their class would was generally relegated to. So when you see like native indigenous people drawn, they're often drawn outside or they're drawn not quite dressed like everybody else, right? To as a way to sort of other them in their society and to make the viewer know that this indigenous person is different than these other people. Like culturally values and they say a picture's worth a thousand words right we know that so it's the same way that they would classify and draw african people sometimes they would draw them in like you know especially if it was an upper class african family but generally speaking they're going to draw them doing something that is going to be in conflict especially in the new world as they want to stop interracial unions, interracial marriage and interracial sex and parentage of children because like i said in the early part, so from the late 1400s through 1650, they just let everybody do what they wanted to do as long as everything was recorded and written down and it was on file with the church. Like It was like, okay, that's your business. You're free. You can do what you want to do. With liberty, excuse me, with freedom came your liberty. By the middle of the 17th century, they're trying to restrict the liberty. But again, like it's been a long time since they did that. So they had to change social opinion. And a lot of these countries didn't have like formal segregation the way we did in the United States, which is also very interesting. But to kind of go back to what I was saying, so they had to change public opinion. So they can't say, oh, well, you can't marry someone who's indigenous now. They're not going to, they can't change the law. They can't say it's illegal to be mixed race because they have a bunch of people who are. But what they can what the United States did that, but we'll talk about that later. But in these countries and throughout Latin America, they're not doing that. But what they do decide to do is say, oh, well, you know, now we're just going to make it um, taboo to marry an indigenous person. Now we're going to say, oh, well, if you marry an indigenous person, like you're going to be fighting with them all the time. Why would you want to marry someone who you're always going to fight with? You know, their culture, they're a violent people. You know, that's why we had to civilize them. And that's why we colonized them and brought them Christianity and Catholicism. Like, that's all part of the same mentality of why they were there in the first place. Like, to soothe these quote-unquote savage people. It's the same thing with what we're talking about with the, with the African-descended people. 
they also view their colonization of them, bringing them over as slave, as enslaved people, as part of their civilizing these savage people too, quote unquote. And that, again, they can't make it illegal to be black. They can't make it illegal to be married to someone who's black or to be biracial. They're not going to do that. Or multi-ethnic if you're mixed in with black. Multi-racial, excuse me, not multi-ethnic. But they don't do that. So what they say is, oh, well, now if you marry a black person, you know, look, look at these black women. All they do is fight. So why would you want to marry a woman who's going to you know, fight you in the kitchen? And look at this screaming half black kid. Do you want these you know, half black children to grow up in it? an unstable household and to see their, you know, violence between their parents. So they create this narrative that, that, you know, black people are violent and that we are undesirable partners. And the same thing has happened in the United States with the media and with Hollywood. I don't know if it happens as much with indigenous people and I'm sure it does, but I'm just not privy to that because we don't see many depictions of indigenous people anyway in mainstream media, but we do see a lot of depictions of black people and the descendants of the enslaved in America, right? So I'm not talking about people from Nigeria and from Tanzania and from South Africa. I'm talking about people from the United States, like my family's descendants, you know, ancestors who've been here for centuries. We see the way they're depicted in the media and it's still very much a way of Look at these people. Look how violent they are. Look how undesirable these women are based on their physicality, based on their cultural practices, things like that. So it's still very much the same agenda then and now throughout the whole hemisphere, whether you're in the Caribbean, South, um, South America, Central America, North America. It's the same thing because, again, these are the same colonizing groups of people. And I think I mentioned in the last podcast, but because there was so much interaction between the different colonizing powers within the New World, so the biggest ones being the Spanish, the Portuguese, the French, the English, and the Dutch, because there's so much interaction between those five groups of people, with the exception of the Portuguese, because they only got Brazil, but the other four are constantly fighting it out, especially in the Caribbean. But not just the Caribbean, but also the mainland, what is now the U.S., right? Like our modern day Louisiana and Florida used to belong to Spain. So that's important stuff, right? And then it switched over. Louisiana switched over as part of the territory to the French. And then it became, you know, it was purchased by the Americans. So like it became part of the United States. Like it changed hands three times. So that's why it's really cool when you look at cities like New Orleans, like New Orleans changed hands three times or some of these Caribbean islands, they changed hands two or three times. So sometimes the names of the cities are still, you know, it may have a French name or it may have a Spanish name or maybe it has an English name or it's, you know, it's mixed. It's been changed. You have mixes of names. It's because it's just um, the hegemonic outcome of that cross um, not cross-contamination, but cross-colonization. I guess it could be considered cross-contamination, but cross-colonization. So the same putting down of the indigenous and the black populations at the time and the descendants of those people even today still perpetuates itself. 
And it's so entrenched in the society that people within those racial groups also perpetuated against each other, right? They rank each other based on European standards. They rank other racial groups by European standards or their, their proximity to that. And that was the whole point of the racial caste system within the colonial era anyway. So I've been talking about this a lot. Like I could talk a lot more, but I'm going to make a third part later. I'll leave you off for now, but I hope you found it really interesting and I will see you on the next episode. Thanks as always for listening. Bye.